Hey, hey, you guys, uh, it's time for Rob Observations. We are back with another Rob Observations. I am Rob Liefeld, 34-year veteran of the comic book industry. Uh, I have produced X-Force, Cable, Deadpool, Captain America, Avengers, started Image Comics with my buddies, Youngblood, Brigade, so many. I, I have had such a fun career. I... I it has been a, an absolute blast making comics, producing thousands and thousands of pages of comic books. It was my mission in life once I pulled my first comic books off the spinner rack to duplicate those comic books, to, to make my own comic books. And for those of you who have taken your typing paper, your, your line art paper, your, your notebook paper, and folded them up and made comic books, that was me. That was all of us who were breaking in. We made our own comic books. And here at Rob Observations, we talk comic books. And we talk comic books and the impact that comic books has had on pop culture. And I, my, my, my saying and, and my phrase that I'm going to repeat again and again and again is that the past informs the future. So much of what we've covered here on 22, 22 episodes of Rob Observations to date is the comic books of the 70s, how they are informing the movies you are seeing in 2020, how they are informing Black Widow, The Eternal, Shang-Chi, The Master of Kung Fu, the entire future film slate that Kevin Feige has put together for you. That is a product of the bronze era of comics, which was the comic books that was coming out that were dropping, that I was pulling off the spinner racks when I was a wee lad of seven and eight years old. My skateboard, my bike, it took me all over Orange County looking for new spinner racks, new comic books. The Super Friends, those cartoons were on in the in the, in the the mornings when I was a kid, and 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 I I, I got to drink in drink in these amazing cartoons, uh, these amazing comic books. Again, all of the stuff that I consumed as a kid, and I consumed it. I didn't collect it because I would not treat them with the same delicate nature that today's fans do, because in truth, again, as I've covered several times, backing boards and Mylar bags or just plastic bags were not introduced to my consciousness until five to six years after I was pulling them off spinner racks and stacking them in my garage and on my shelves and in my drawers, uh, because that was a part of the collectible aspect of comic books, which I would encounter when I went to my very first comic store. Oh my gosh, you know, perfectly sized cardboard, you know, stiff backings in a perfectly sized plastic, you know, bag. That was something that was completely new to me. But in, in those early days, taking them off the spinner rack, taking them to grandma's house, to my aunt's house, to, to, to birthday parties, to occasions, to church. Boy, did I bring a lot of comic books to church. That was quite the smuggle. But uh, those comics have brought you Infinity Gauntlet, Endgame, all of the early, all, all the first three Thor movies, the first three Cat movies, um, so much of what you have seen with Batman in the last 15 years is a result of the events that occurred in the pages of Batman comics that I read when I was a kid. We have covered the names, the Frank Millers, the John Burns, the Alan Moores, the Walt Simonsons, the Howard Shakens, George Perez. These are the guys that made the tremendous impact. Multiple titles over over just the most amazing era of comics. But in 1988, that was starting to change. And today we are going to talk about the changing of the guard and what 1988 
meant in terms of the new faces that were coming in. We have discussed the fact that from about 1984 to 1987, there were no, very few names coming in, from Art Adams to Mike Mignola to a, a guy named Kevin McGuire who hit like wildfire on Justice League with his amazing drawing ability, his beautiful facial expressions. It was fresh. His line art was tight. There was this very specific pull-out rendering that he did, but it was so much about those beautiful faces. And I have always been drawn to faces. All the guys I liked have drawn uh, commercially appealing, attractive faces. And McGuire was one of the best. But that's just three guys. And three guys are, are not tackling a whole ton of assignments. And again, in the 70s and the 80s, you got John Byrne, Frank Miller, Walt Simonson, Howard Shakin, uh, George Perez. You, you, you've got uh, Mike Zeck. I mean, there, there are so many that I'm, I'm I'm not naming that are just flying right past me. Um, you've got Bob McLeod, Steve Lealoa, Bill Sienkiewicz. So many. Paul Smith, Dave Cockrum. This is just there were dozens of exciting young artists who were taking the mantle from the John Buscemas, the George Tuscas, the Don Hecks, uh, the Dick Dillons, the guys who had come before. There's always a new class, but there was kind of like this pent-up constipation of talent that hadn't hit yet. But then 1988 comes along. All the hiring is done in early 87, but when I, 1988 comes along, it's like the doors are blown off and we talk Last uh, episode, we, we, we talked in an earlier episode titled The L Boys, dubbed by Todd McFarlane. The L Boys! Oh, the, the L Boys! Lim, Larson, Lee, Liefeld. That's four of us. That's four of us. But shortly after, you got Dale Keown. You got Wills Portacio. You got Jeff Purvis, who kind of did this brief run on... Hulk, it was interesting. It, it bridged the gap between the Todd McFarlane era and the Dale Keown era. But again, a, a brand new fresh face that hadn't done comics. But we were the new class. Todd McFarlane obviously was fighting, punching his way through. Mark Silvestri was shining. This was, we, we were starting to banty together and, uh, and become this formidable class of young talent that would change the landscape of the comic book industry. Change it quite dramatically after, actually. We would... We would uh, challenge sales records, shatter sales records, and, and, and several of us still hold those records. But that is way ahead of where we are at right now in 1988. And the thing about 1988 is we were all cutting our teeth. We were all um, starting out uh, on what would be the launch pads for our career. Those, those early jobs that you are so thankful to receive that you are able to connect with an audience, find out what you're doing, what people like. For me, that book was Hawk and Dove. And uh, before I get too far astray or into this, Eric Larson at the time was taking on Doom Patrol. Jim Lee was taking on Alpha Flight. And Ron Lim was doing Cyforce. Todd was transitioning from the Hulk to Spider-Man. Mark Silvestri was still on the X-Men and uh, Dale Keown was not yet uh, come to the comic book shores yet, but but he was on his way. But so so when I was doing Hawk and Dove, Jim and Ron Lim were over at Marvel, and Eric and I are beginning to thrive on monthly assignments at DC Comics. Uh, for me, Hawk and Dove was hard fought. I had been hired 
by Marvel at WonderCon 1987. They gave me some Marvel Universe handbook uh, entries to draw. I in, in, in Marvel Universe, the Book of the Dead, an entire series where they did characters who had died, I did the Zodiac, a whole group of characters based on the signs of the Zodiac, Libra, Virgo, all of it. And uh, and I had handed those in immediately, you know, turned those around in a weekend to just show that how, how excited I was, how, how eager I was to meet my deadlines. I was told I was going to get a story in the back of Solo Avengers, which was a title that was spotlighting Solo Avengers titles. And I was waiting on that when DC Comics had offered me this bonus book where I would draw a 16-page Warlord story that would be a bonus book inside an upcoming issue of Warlord. So you are in no position to turn down work when you are young. You are in no position to turn down work. So you take as much work as you possibly can that's being offered to you, especially when you are trying to pay your rent. And again, I am a kid who has just completed a year of doing three jobs uh, every day almost. I delivered pizzas four nights a week for my buddy's pizza parlor, and that was the easiest of the jobs I did. I generally generally get on the job between 6 and work till 11 or midnight, and uh, my day job was working on a construction site. I had to be at the construction site at 5.30 every morning, which meant getting up at 4.45, getting out, out of the house by 5, and making the half-hour drive to the office where we would get our assignments, and then we would generally be on the construction site between 6, 6.30, and that would go till 4 o'clock every day, and then I could drive home and generally get home by 5 o'clock. That was Monday through Saturday for young Rob Liefeld, 18-year-old Rob Liefeld. Finally, I was working as a busboy on the nights I wasn't delivering pizzas. All my buddies had gotten jobs at a new restaurant, and it was easy. You got dressed up in a nice, uh, at this place, nice dress shirt, slacks, dress dress shoes, you know, your nice uh your nice, uh, this was a swanky restaurant called the Melody Inn in Fullerton, California. And it was around until the early 90s when it burned down. But it was a new Roaring Twenties restaurant. I was a busboy there with all my buddies. And we would just clean tables, you know, bring out waters and bus tables all night. And split the tips with the waitresses at the end of the night. And that was my 18-year-old experience as I was trying to put a roof over my head. And help out my parents who had once again fallen on some difficult times uh, I, I, I was uh, the son of a Baptist minister who, in 1978, went in for some uh, a brain tumors that created a, bl a blood clot, which put him in a coma for nine entire months. He was away from our house. The doctors kept telling my mom to unplug him. He would never wake up. He was going to be a vegetable. That is a tough uh, pill to swallow when you're a kid. Part of the relationship that I have with comics that is so tight and so deep and so personal and I've been able to examine it in my adult life is those comic books were on my lap in the drive to the hospital every day. We went to see my dad every day. I was not allowed to see him. He was discolored as a result of the coma, but my mom and my sister occasionally got in to see him. I would always have my latest comic books to comfort me in the waiting room, in, uh, in the, uh, the drive to and from. And afterwards, and this was a very sad time in my life. So the comic books were a huge source of inspiration, an escape, if you will, an absolute escape into another world that would occupy my brain and my imagination and take me away from the pain, especially that my mom was feeling because she was very overwhelmed, uh, crying all the time, as would your mom, as would anyone whose husband went in for a brain surgery and did not come out for nine months. So 
I even was driven to the local market to get new comic books as a distraction when they drove my dad home uh, that uh, morning, you know, about 10 months later, because once he woke up, he had a solid month of therapy before he could be taken home. Then he would do physical therapy for a great, uh, you know, for many months. But the the thing is, they uh, they wanted to get me out of out of the house, drive him home, get him situated, and then I would drive back with my sister, who I would then come inside, and there's my dad on the couch. He's returned home. I had comic books in my hand. So comic books have kind of always been a part of my life. And uh, in 1988, my dad was on his third surgery. Those pesky tumors kept growing back. We had been financially crippled as a family. My dad had lost all of his work because of the insurance burdens on him with his tumors. My mom was working as a secretary, so I was pitching in and helping out as much as I could. So this detour was, in fact, to inform you that you cannot afford to pass up jobs. A bonus book in Warlord was not as sexy as a story in the back of the Avengers, but you go to where the paychecks are, and I am ready to move my pencil across the Bristol board, give you drawings that I can get paid for, get my established rate. I think I started out again at $85 a page, and I was off to the races. I did my Warlord bonus book. And shortly after that, I got a call to do a Secret Origins back, uh, a story in an issue of Secret Origins. Marvel was, DC Comics was putting out a Secret Origins comic book, which always featured two tales, generally. Very rarely was it one 48-page tale, but it was a 48-page comic book, and they always gave you two different stories. And so uh, my Nightshade story was one of the stories in an upcoming issue, and Nightshade had become a part of the Suicide Squad in this latest incarnation of the Suicide Squad that was being published by DC Comics. And it was a fun story. It gave me a, a lot to do. Uh, there, there was a little fantasy prelude as in a, in a backstory of how Nightshade's mom gave her her powers and then up to the present with them as part of the Suicide Squad and encounters with the Justice League. So it was fun. It was a really fun story. And finally, I had been given the call that I was going to finally be selected to be a part of Hawk and Dove because that summer while I was doing in 87, while I was uh, turning in my bonus book work, I was uh, given the treatment to an upcoming series called Hawk and Dove. Now let's revisit Hawk and Dove. Hawk and Dove had briefly had a seven issue series in the 60s done by two giant, staggering, amazing talents in comics. Steve Ditko, who is one of the primary creators of Spider-Man, uh, a seminal, seminal force in comics. Spider-Man and Doctor Strange creations are on his resume and all the villains. So he, he gave you Spider-Man, he gave you Doctor Strange, he gave you Dormammu, Mordru, Nightmare, Green Goblin, Vulture, Doc Ock, all of it. Steve Ditko, phenomenal. When he went to DC, he had created Hawk and Dove. Hawk and Dove was created out of the protests of the 60s, out of the college movement, out of the, uh, you know, the, 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 some would call you the hippie movement, but this, uh, war and peace were their, uh, representatives. Hawk represented war and Dove represented peace. Hank Hall, Don Hall were brothers attending college. They were, uh, transforming into the aggressive Hawk who represented war and the, uh, passive, the pacifist that was Dove. So Steve Ditko got his political, uh, leanings and, and his political kind of, uh, uh, 
ideas and machinations worked out with these two characters. Again, always representing these different sides and how they worked uh, for and against uh, each other in each story and giving you kind of a nice morality play at the same time as well as some political commentary. Very cool looking characters. Well, Hawk was. Dove was, from the beginning, when I first encountered him in a uh, issue of the Teen Titans in the 1977 when DC briefly revisited the Titans again with uh, uh, Don Heck on art and, and some Rich Buckler covers. Hawk and Dove were uh, in and out of that book, and Dove looked like a doily, uh, one of those doilies that they put down when you're at a restaurant to to take the moisture from your uh, glass of water. Um, he just he looked like a, a guy who was putting on a shower cap with um, little frilly doily wings. He was very, very... Um, very feminine in his design, and uh, but more importantly, just not, he didn't look cool. Hawk looked cool. Red, white, kind of a jagged edge on everything, and these kind of like spires that jut, jutted out of, 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 of his shoulders and uh, that, that would wiggle around and, and, and create different shapes, and very cool looking character. Great, great name, Hawk and Dove. Hawk and Dove, okay? And, uh, but whether it was by Steve Ditko or Gil Kane who followed Steve Ditko after Steve launched it, it didn't take, uh, the, the fans weren't there for it and they retired Hawk and Dove uh, very quickly. Hawk and Dove would then live on in the pages of the Teen Titans, bumping into them, becoming kind of uh, honorary Teen Titan members at, at that point in the 60s and the 70s. They were not a dedicated part of the team. The, the Titans, the most identifiable, identifiable Titans lineup was always Robin, Wonder Girl, Kid Flash, Speedy, and Aqualad. And then there would be a, rotate, a rotating group that would interact with them uh, from Lilith uh, and, and, and Hawk and Dove and Hornblower. Just fun fun roster, but they, they, had never been, uh, they had never been commercial sellers. And that presented a challenge. Dove was actually killed in the Crisis on Infinite Earths, which was the giant mega crossover we have praised here so often at DC Comics. that kind of created the reset uh, for the DC universe and, and Dove died and unceremoniously, uh, I mean, kind of, kind of a really soft death. I mean, if you wanted to say like, he kind of went out like a bitch, you, you could get away with saying that, uh, you know, during the crisis, the, 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 in the melee with all the crowds, you know, it was like a building fell on him. He dissipated as part of the, uh, you know, as the energy was engulfing the city and Hawk was left to go, oh, my brother, Don, no! So, so Dove was gone. Hawk was now solo. And prior to doing Hawk and Dove, they had had a Titans spotlight book and they had given two issues to Hawk by himself. And uh, I just remember that Butch Geis, Jackson, soon to be Jackson Geis, uh, who had done a stellar run on the Micronauts and had in fact done a really killer miniseries called X-Men Micronauts were two fan favorite teams teamed up. Uh, he was now at DC and doing The Flash, which was an exceptional comic, and had done these two issues of just Hawk on his own, and Hawk was fighting guys with rifles, kind of a somewhere between Daredevil and 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 you know Spider-Man, but nowhere near as exciting, wasn't swinging from rooftops, wasn't blind, didn't have a billy club, was just kind of an angry guy who transformed and was missing Dove. Barbara Kiesel and Carl Kiesel were a married couple that I met uh, that were shopping this proposal around. Carl was one of, if not the, 
premier inker in comics at the time. He had been inking choice uh, assignments. Both John Byrne and George Perez had become, you know, now the top two guys at DC as they were when they were at Marvel together. And whether it was the history of the DC Universe, which was a about a 110-page uh, illustrated history of the DC Universe that George Perez did post-crisis, that, 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 that's a ton of work. Carl inked all of it. He inked everything over George, and I was like, wow, I, I, he may be my favorite inker on George Perez now. Carl was then assigned to ink John Byrne on Superman, and I got to tell you, man, I, I, it, it was beautiful. Carl is a ridiculously talented inker, illustrator, illustrator in his own right, but he was really soaring as an inker, and he was also inking Luke McDonald on Suicide Squad, and it was the best an artist named Luke McDonald had ever looked. So what was combining all of this to me as a fan in 1985, 1986 was Carl Kiesel. He is the reason that John Byrne is looking so good, that George Perez is maybe looking the best he ever did, and that Luke, Luke McDonald was looking as superb as he was. So the idea that this proposal for Hawk and Dove uh, by Barbara and Carl was going to be a miniseries that Carl would, as part of the cell, he would he would ink. So you would so Carl came with with the dinner. Like he came with the project. Okay, great. I'm I'm all over this. I read it and it was this supernatural, really ramped up the supernatural take on Hawk and Dove. Took them from war and peace to chaos and order. No longer were they war and peace, they were chaos and order. And it was tapping into the supernatural realms of the DC universe, which, you know, when we talk about the DC the supernatural realms of the DC universe, you're talking Dr. Fate, you're talking the Creeper, you're talking the Phantom Stranger, you're talking Eclipso. This is a very cool world, and I wanted to be a part of it. And so I had gone so far as to do some sample pages trying to uh, show how I would depict Hawk with this new dove. They were introducing a brand new female dove. There was no designs. There was zero put in front of me. But the editor who was assigned to make Hawk and Dove happen based on their outline, which again uh, revealed the supernatural element. And basically, because Dove had died in crisis, order demanded that a new Dove would, would you know, be introduced. And that was kind of their, their jumping off point. And as a result of this new Dove being introduced that would um, kind of be at counter... Uh, you know, be a counter to Hawk and they didn't know each other and weren't familiar or were they, you know, there's the, there's the mystery there. Um, but this new female dove would uh, stir things up and also introduce a new other bird themed character named Kestrel, who was almost demonic in his evil and his intent to uh, infect mankind and take down Hawk and, o Hawk and Dove who were standing kind of, uh, at, at odds with him, keeping him at bay. So this was a very exciting proposal. And in my young career, I just knew if I could get this job, I could strut. I could show everything in my arsenal. I knew that I could do action well. I had been brought up on a diet of Frank Miller and George Perez, Walt Simonson, some of the best action artists I'd ever, you know, encountered. Um, I just, I knew I could do uh, great interaction. I, that, that Kevin McGuire stuff had really opened up to me, what you could do if you put your face in front of a mirror and made uh, facial, you know, uh, expressions. And, and, and so I, I just felt like I could bring 
the whole menu to this job. But they told me on the floor of Comic-Con in 1987, when I met them briefly and they handed me this outline, they told me I would need to talk to Mike Carlin. Again, I had been hired in comics in April of 1987, and now I am doing work, albeit on these short stories, in in summer of 1987. So so this is, you know, from April to now July, I'm on the hunt. I want an assignment. I want something I can sink my teeth into. I understand I'm getting these short stories. That's fantastic. But like any artist, you want something long-term. And the idea was that this miniseries would be five to six issues long. I go up to Mike Carlin. I am, I am aware of Mike Carlin. He was an editor at Marvel Comics until he wasn't. He had a falling out with Jim Shooter. He was sent over to DC, where now he was on the Superman titles with John Byrne. They had worked together over at Marvel, so they reconnected at DC, and Mike became John's kind of gatekeeper, his editor. And so I went to talk to Mike Carlin, who had a very sizable ego for someone uh, who, in, in my opinion, <clears throat> was part of the editorial structure of the business. Uh, he had written a couple of short stories, but bottom line, I gave him the respect that he deserved being the gatekeeper of not only Superman, but of this project, and he was very dismissive of me as a young talent, and I got it. I'm now a rookie coming off the bench on a uh, on a team at DC Comics trying to show you that I can knock down shots, that I can get rebounds, that I can contribute in any way. That's what it is. I knew my place, but I couldn't contain my enthusiasm, and he was always very eager to pour the cold water on my enthusiasm. And uh, he would tell me that it was probably not in the cards that they would give me something like this right off the bat, even though, as I have covered, there had not been a Hawk and Dove series since the either 1969 or 1970. It is now 1988. So they have not had their own series in 18 years, and they were anything but fan-favorite characters. So I figured I was the perfect guy to team with Barbara and Carl, but maybe they wanted somebody uh, a, a bigger name. And quite frankly, Mike Carlin told me that they were out to five to six other pencilers. I have, uh, I was aware of some of the artists that they were uh, dancing with on this. And in fact, two of them, I, I went to directly and said, hey, I, I, are, are you going to be doing that Hawk and Dove series? I, I know your name's been, been thrown around. And and both of them flat out told me, oh, oh yeah, I, I'm not doing that. They just don't understand. I, I, I've turned that down, but that they're still under the 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 idea that I'm going to accept that that job, but I'm not. And I was like, ha 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 ha. Okay, so so not everybody that they're pinning their hopes on. And when I say they, I mean Mike Carlin, because if I haven't been really clear, Barbara and Carl responded to my enthusiasm, had seen my samples, and thought that I would be great on the gig. Both of them had given me their blessing, and they had told the editor Mike Carlin that I would be great for the job. Now, look, I'm not stupid. Had Art Adams called up, Art Adams would get the job. You know, had had a bigger established name wanted the gig and you're Barbara and Carl and you want your first foray as writers. Because that 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 was this was that is what Hawk and Dove represented for them was their first outing as writers. You want the bigger name. Just like in movies and television and whatever, you want the bigger name. But Looked like all the big names had passed and all the medium-sized names were not looking to get into the business. And part of this uh, is due to royalties, which is going to be on a future episode. I know a lot of you guys have been asking me about royalties and the breakdown of the business, and we will cover that. It definitely influences so much of what is to come on every level. But Hawk and Dove, if maybe you can go do a book that's going to get you a bigger royalty lead 
yield, a bigger royalty yield. Maybe that's the assignment that you wanted to avoid because Hawk and Dove was untested. It had untested talent in writers. It had untested talent in characters. If anything, uh, for an established guy, it had all the, the, the warning signs of move along, do something else. But Rob Liefeld wanted this like he has wanted few things in his life up until that time as he was uh, 18, 19 years old at the, at the time of this. So I went from San Diego, like I said, to continuing to do uh, multiple uh, sample pages for Hawk and Dove. I wanted to show everybody how I would do Hawk and Dove. I did a scene with Hawk and Dove, the new Dove, as I would depict her. I had given her a very specific design uh, on a rooftop, and then they were attacked by this villain, Kestrel. Kestrel also had zero, zero uh, visual uh, designs presented to me. He was just a name and a concept, and so I had given a visual to Kestrel. I had given a visual to Dove. Well, uh, like I said, by the time I had finished my Secret Origins uh, assignment in the fall, I got the call that I was going to be given the job that I was going to be given the break. And Mike Carlin told me in no uncertain terms on the phone call uh, as he called me to say, look, I'm going to be honest. Everyone turned us down. So I just want you to know, you know, you're just getting this job because there's nobody else. And look, so here's the deal. There's all sorts of different kind of coaching. You know, we've all been coached. I've been coached. I played sports. Uh, I, you know, whether it's your head coach, your line coach, your receivers coach, your special teams coach, everybody has a different voice. My son's have played all sorts of sports. They played football, basketball, soccer. My daughter has played soccer, and uh, uh, you know she 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 played uh, some some basketball early on. My kids, I I have encountered all sorts of pros. One of my son's uh, coaches was a uh, player for the Houston Rockets. Uh, we have gotten everything from soup to nuts in terms of coaching, and as you all know. If you have been coached or have a kid who's been coached, uh, every coach has a different style, has a different approach. Some are relentless. They want to challenge you at every level. No, no, no breaks, no days off, just constantly in your face, pushing, pushing, pushing. Others are more aspirational. They want to give you a goal. They want to share with you how they're going to help you get there. Um, Mike Carlin, from all of my encounters with him over this year, was nothing but the biggest bully I have ever encountered in comics. Um, there would be numerous times where he was in today's mark in today's market he would have been uh, written up for abuse for verbal and for emotional abuse but I could take it because at the end of the day it's not going to be worse than my dad being in a coma for nine months and that's one thing you need to be under understand about me and my entire approach to my career nothing is ever going to match that time and that sadness of my dad being in the hospital and having a family uh, teetering on the edge of complete emotional uh, and financial collapse. So when I was challenged by anybody and, and, and somebody as, as small and petty as a Mike Carlin, it was easy for me to answer that bell. That, that was nothing. I would always smirk or chuckle, um, which would, you know, get mark me as cocky, but it was really the way I coped. I'm like, wow, I can't believe this guy is kind of so insensitive, mean, uh, coarse, and, you know, whatever. Carl and... Barbara was sweet and accommodating, and I just knew that my editor had basically started the project by saying, you're the last guy we wanted, but you're the only guy standing there to get the assignment, so off you go. I attacked Talking Dove. That first issue was fantastic. Carl and Barbara were tremendous first-year writers, and the splash page, the cliffhanger to that first issue was perfect. The 
introduction of Dove after kind of teasing us with her throughout. You got the big full splash page, she and Hawk in the same room facing each other. Issue two opens with some amazing action as we, uh, you know, now get them in action together, which is what you want, which is why you're picking up the book. And, uh, and, and, and the evil that we built on with Kestrel in the first episode, uh, I always felt like, um, they, they really had modeled or, or I just decided to model my version of Kestrel out of his costume on Rutger Hauer in The Hitchhiker. And I then basically made Kestrel into almost a Wolverine type visual because I felt like the visual language was there already with the hawk design. And given that he was an even nastier, meaner bird than Hawk, I gave him more of a tilt towards Wolverine, because why not? Why not push that envelope? Uh, Hawk and Dove, you've got the, 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 the red of Hawk and the blue of Dove created the purple of Kestrel. And that's how that was decided. So that was cool. But Dove's visual, remember what I said earlier on about the male Dove being very, he had a full like shower cap, the kind my mom would put on uh, to cover her hair when she'd take a shower on the day she wasn't washing her hair, like so many women of that age, the 50s, 60s, 70s, maybe now, even today. And on a guy, it just looked weird. And then the, the full, the, it was such a boring kind of blue and some white panties and boots and, and, and gloves. And then, like I said, this, these doily, they weren't even wings. It was a doily cape in the back. And, and, and it's like, this has never been an inspiring design. And so I had given like five different designs for Dove that I really wanted to base her on and give her the elegance of a character that was near and dear to me, like an Electra. She was more acrobatic and had martial arts uh, moves that she was pulling off. So I was very much visualizing a longer cape that would ebb and flow in the wind as she kicked. And also a more, I wanted to cut out the mask and give her this long flowing hair that would blow in the wind, providing even more visual, you know, oomph. Again, the, the flow and, and, and the sway of the hair as a figure is kicking and, 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 and jumping and leaping and, and striking can provide so much extra motion. First, the note I get back from Mike Carlin is no, no hair. You know, underline, underscore. Now, what I'm about to tell you, Carl and Barbara write about in the foreword of Hawk and Dove, the uh, original trade paperback that was released shortly after we did the miniseries. So I'm sourcing this. This is not something that you go, oh, Lightfeld, the gripes. No, this is this is real. Mike Carlin was completely against having her break the original design mode of the original male dove. And I, I finally said, look, you guys, this is kind of a deal breaker for me. If we give her a full shower cap, there's nothing sleek about that. And in essence, all we've done is give Don Hall, D-O-N, Don Hall, the brother to Hank Hall, we have just given him boobs. That's all. Boobs and hips. That's what the female dove is. It's it's Don Hall's costume on a female with who has an hourglass figure, and it's still strikingly um, undynamic and not interesting and not cool. Barbara and Carl saw this as an opportunity to really throw support behind me. They did. They write about this, and Carl's like, Rob was right. This was the way to go. We uh, compromised on a ponytail. So that her that the long flowing hair that I wanted was now cut down to a flowing ponytail, which I used like a whip. I whipped that thing around like it was a whip that could snap your face, your neck. Um, so I took the compromise, but the facial mask that I had created had now 
uh, was now determined to be with the big giant. I wanted big giant Steve Ditko uh, eyes, the way Steve Ditko had given Spider-Man. That was my other big design element because Dove just had these eyes that came through cutouts. And I said, no, I want these big, like giant Ditko eyes. So between that and the hair and the new shawl and the new design of the costume, we were off to the races. Barbara and Carl had come down on my side. They had, I, I don't know what occurred inside the offices of New York. Both of them lived in Connecticut and were in the, in the DC offices quite often because I would go stay with them. Uh, early on during Hawk and Dove and visit the offices and Carl would take me through his daily routine. Barbara was also, if I hadn't mentioned already, she was an editor, an editor at DC. So like Mike Carlin, she had, she held an edit, editor status, staff position at DC Comics and had a line of books that she herself was responsible for. She just wasn't responsible for these. So she had to defer to Mike. Well, early on, uh, so the, the first issue came out, it was great. I thought it came together great. I had no idea if anybody liked it. I was not shown sales figures. I was not shown fan mail. I uh, went, plowed through issue two. And as anybody can tell you, once you're into the story and you're finding your voice with your characters, issue two was my favorite thing that I had done up until that point. And I felt that if at any time you can see Carl and I working perfectly together, Carl had slightly overpowered some of my faces in the first issue. I did what any penciler does. I called up my anchor. I asked him, could you, could you, um, you know, maybe stick closer to this style of drawing that I'm doing. And he would say, well, this is why I'm doing this. And we had a meeting of the minds and Carl was super accommodating and wonderful. And issue two, as a result, those faces, the figures, the forms, that is one of my favorite jobs in my entire career. It is my favorite job with Carl Kiesel. Um, I was supposedly running a little behind, so I had to catch up. And issue three, I did more of a tight breakdowns. I didn't do full pencils like issues one and two. Um, where I would just put so much of the lead on the paper. And and, and again, uh, when I got to Marvel, uh, the editor-in-chief at Marvel at the time, Tom DeFalco, would tell me, he said, you know, we, we don't pay you for the amount of lead you put on the page. You understand that, right? And again, in the Marvel method of especially so much of what Marvel was doing that I would come to realize that I loved in the 70s and the 80s was guys like John Buscema uh, and others doing breakdowns. You know, not this full lush pencil uh, that, that Art Adams would always kind of do and set the standard for the new guard. But issue three to catch up, I did more of breakdowns. Uh, issue four, uh, you know, really great penultimate issue coming along. And, uh, and then issue five lands. And in issue five, Hawk and Dove are going into the chaos universe. And my good buddy, Eric Larson, again, a fellow L-boy, had been doing the Doom Patrol. And one of the big advertised uh, aspects of Crisis on Infinite Earths post-crisis. The reason they did it was so that everything in the DC universe would be consistent. It would be consistent. Consistency, consistency, consistency. What happened in one book or realm would be reflected in another book or realm. That is what the idea behind all of it was. So, Eric had had the Doom Patrol with his writer, Paul Coverberg. They had the Doom Patrol fall into the Chaos Dimension. The chaos dimension is powering our entire book. It is chaos and order are the pillars that Hawk and Dove are built on. While I am doing Hawk and Dove around issues two or three, this Doom Patrol issue of the Doom Patrol falling into the chaos dimension occurs. And Eric brilliantly, when they entered the chaos dimension, rewarded all of us visually by turning the pages sideways. 
so that then you were reading the book sideways and you were encountering everything sideways. And it was so much fun. And when they came out of the chaos dimension, it went back to from horizontal. Okay. You know, uh, from, from turning from, from a horizontal, you know, uh, uh, template, it went back to a normal, straightforward, you know, uh, template that you were normally encountering comic books on. But that was a fun twist. And your 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 eyes and your 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 flow of the page turned and now you're flipping it a different way and then you're out of the book and it was really fun and really cool and John Byrne had done an entirely sideways page sideways issue of the Fantastic Four when they were in the negative zone a few years prior. And it was a giant, you know, uh advertised marketed thing that John Byrne was doing. So when Eric did this um, on uh, on Doom with with the Doom Patrol and the Chaos Dimension, I thought it was really really fun. Well, my plot to Hawk and Dove Five has Hawk and Dove falling into the Chaos Dimension for ten pages. I followed uh, Eric's exact lead, but I am getting slightly ahead of myself. At one point between issues three and four, um, I had called Mike Carlin to ask if again maybe it was between issues one and two if Carl would. I'd hear closer to my faces because again, as I said, I love faces. Faces is what draws me into a comic book from Neil Adams to Frank Miller to John Byrne to Walt Simonson to George Perez to Kevin McGuire. I'm all about the faces. So I wanted to see the faces that I was working so hard to construct uh, more adhered to, you know, if at all possible, I'd put that forth. Well, it was a weekend on Saturday when, a, when Mike Carlin called, and this was the first time the abuse occurred, and he raised his voice at me in a way that I will not duplicate here, screaming at me. And the entire time I'm hearing this chopping sound and he screams at me, how dare you? How dare you? How dare you ask for a, a veteran anchor, someone as talented as Carl, you know, to adhere to your lines. Don't you understand? You're just here for the storytelling. You're just here for the storytelling. Carl can do whatever he wants artistically. He's the senior member on this. And you are just there really to do the storytelling because Carl isn't up to snuff as a storyteller, but you, you, you're providing good storytelling then for him to draw on top of. And I said, then why am I getting a full penciling rate? I'm not getting a breakdowns or a layouts rate. And he says, look, we're doing you a favor here. You know, you, you think you could skip steps? Do you really think that you could not put in the time and earn your position in this industry? And his voice went up. To a point that, I gotta be honest, I was near tears. It's a Saturday afternoon. I am in my little teeny weeny studio that I have rented in Anaheim that I loved. Oh my gosh, I loved it so much. But I am being unloaded on by this guy who is screaming at me. And there's this chopping sound. And then he says, oh, I'm, I'm dicing onions and celery, um, get, getting ready to make some dinner here. And then because I, I kind of gasped and I stopped and my breathing changed and I was fighting back turning. Tears. He goes, oh, come on. Look, look, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, look, I'm sorry. It's just, you know, you need to know your place. You need to know your place. And I said, I'm sorry to have bothered you. And, and, you know, thanks for calling me. I didn't call him on the weekend. He had returned my call from earlier in the week. And at that point, I went, okay, I get it. So I'm up against a lot of elements here as a young penciler. Some of you guys who have had early jobs, you know what I'm talking about. We have our aspirations. They have their expectations and agendas. And it's all about making it work. Like I said, not the same as having a dad in a hospital, uh, you know, being told by physicians that he's not going to make it and he's going to have his 
you know, machine unplugged and that's their recommend because he's going to be a vegetable, a term they used in the 70s for someone who would be incapacitated and brain dead. So Mike Carlin unloading on me was not the same, but it forged in me, it steeled me, it steeled me like I am not going to let this guy. It took me by surprise, but this would not ever take me by surprise again. In between issues four and five, he informs everyone he works with. There was a cheesy, and I'm, I'm not kidding you, it, it was fun, but it was cheesy, syndicated Superboy show that was being made during this time. It was on on the weekends here in Southern California. I'm, I'm sure you guys got it on a Saturday or Sunday. It was always like Saturday, five o'clock, Sunday, four o'clock. And it was, uh, they went through a couple Superboys during the production. But um, Mike, as the Superman editor, and with Hollywood in his eyes, and he always was really batting his eyes towards anything Hollywood, anything, any, any scripts, any Hollywood, you know, interest would greatly impress him as an editor. He had informed everybody that he was going to be on set for the entire month following, which I would be doing, Hawk and Dove 5. And he informed me that his assistant editor named Renee Witterstatter would be calling the shots. I had worked with Renee the entire time through Hawk and Dove. I had a fine working relationship with her. And he said, you know, if you need anything, talk to Renee. Um, I'll be on set in Florida where they're shooting. And he was very excited to be on set. I'll be checking in from time to time, but blah, blah, blah. So um, by this time, it's 1988. It's, I've met Todd McFarlane. I've been referred to as the L-boy. I am going home to finish up five. I had met with Dick Giordano at San Diego of 1988 because, again, I didn't get the job to do to start on Hawk and Dove until um, winter of 88. And now the book is coming out in the summer, and I am negotiating with Dick Giordano to get a page rate because I have done, like, at this point, six, seven jobs for DC Comics. I've met all my deadlines, and he agrees to bump me up. Now, here's the trick. DC used to let you voucher for your job in advance. Yes. They trusted that if you handed in a voucher for all 22 pages, that you would finish those 22 pages. It's kind of an honor roll. Well, I kept it, but right there, Dick Giordano shook my hand and said, Rob, I have been really impressed with the work you're doing, and we are going to give you the raise that you're asking. And they bumped me up to like 160 a page, which was great. Um, now, I had also been called by Marvel Comics in the interim that when I was done with Hawk and Dove, because there was no way I wasn't going to finish Hawk and Dove, that they had books in the X office waiting for me. I've told the story many times about Bob Harris calling me. I, if you've heard me at a convention, my phone rang at home. It said, I'm Bob Harris from the X-Men office at Marvel. And I said, this is no way. This is Bob Harris. I thought I was being pranked by my friends. I said, can I, can I take your number and call you back and make sure? And Bob was like, uh, okay, yeah, this is funny, but yeah. And I took the name and the number down and I called him right back and it said Marvel Comics. Let me patch you through. And I'm like, I can't believe I'm being called. That's how in awe I was. And he said he was a brand new editor on the X-Books, moving up from his station with the Hulk books and some other books. And he was going to be taking over the X-Men and he wanted new blood and he wanted me a part of it. And he was very impressed with my work on the on, on Hawk and Dove. And if you can tell the enthusiasm that I am giving you right now from what I heard back then, it's still fresh to me to this day. It was exciting. It was electric. I, I could not have been more thrilled. So I had that waiting in the wings. I just needed to finish Hawk and Dove. Number five, I've gotten my race from DC. I get home from San Diego. I send in my voucher because it's going to take two weeks anyway to get paid. And I voucher for all of Hawk and Dove five. I put that in. I go about doing Hawk and Dove five, which I do. I'm back on full pencils. I have shared all of the pencils from this issue up on my social medias. 
And when they get to the chaos dimension, I absolutely follow Eric's lead and I turn it horizontal. And they have these amazing uh, battle with Kestrel in the chaos dimension. And it is all now turned on its side. And some of the best storytelling I've ever done, some of the best inverted Z, your eye is following exactly where I want it to. And I hand it in and I'm done. I get to page 22. I am, I have had such a good time drawing this issue that I do it in like three weeks. And I hand it in and Renee says, yeah, it's good. You're good to go. You're completed. I've put your voucher through. And what do you know? Uh, the, the check for all 22 pages comes right about when I hand in my 22nd page, because again, you could voucher in advance. Well, I am now accepting a new mutants story an inventory story from Bob Harris. I am now working for Marvel Comics. I am drawing my first three pages when my phone rings. And who could it be? Because again, guys, there was no email. The, 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 the internet did not exist in 1988. There was no email. But this was the late August, early September. I get a call from Mike Carlin. And the call goes like this. Who do you think you are? Just who do you think you are? Who the hell... Do you think you are? I am holding the phone away from my face. Mike Carlin berates me and says to me, so, so I leave. I go, I go out of town. I go, I go to Florida to, 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 to cover the Superboy show. And, and that's when you decide that you're going to make your move, huh? That's when you decide you're going to make your move. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to assert your authority. No one gave you the authority to turn these pages sideways. I do not know what you were thinking, but this is not approved. This is not okay. And you are going to redraw every single page that you turned sideways. I'm going, no, I'm not. I love that work. And I can't believe I'm making an artistic stand at 19 years old, but no, the hell I am not redrawing those pages. I said, Mike, I don't think you understand. I've been paid for that job. That job is in the rearview mirror. I am also extremely proud of that job. And he screamed at me, you're going to redraw these pages or you're not getting the Hawk and Dove regular series. And you got to understand at that point, I'm like, what? Huh? Like I had heard mumblings, but I don't care. That was a great, fantastic five issue series that I did with Barbara and Carl. It has been collected uh, for the last 30 years in multiple editions, trade paperback form. I could not be more proud of the work I did. I could not be more proud of those pages. And for Mike Carlin to demand for me to redraw them was ridiculous, especially under this um, conspiracy theory that he passes by me that I waited till he was off, you know, he was away in Florida, not on top of the editorial game. I, I preyed upon his assistant editor who was super capable, super aware. And whatever abuse she took from Mike on this, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm so sorry if, if, if that ever occurred. Um, he then told me that if I wasn't going to cooperate, he would have Carl Kiesel redraw the pages. And I said, Mike, they're your pages. DC paid for them. Um, as, as for a Hawk and Dove regular series, I will not be joining you on that regardless. I am working in the X office. And he, what? Screams at me. Again, I'm, I cannot even begin to tell you what an abusive, uh, guy this guy was. And I, a buddy of mine, whose name I will not divulge because I have not gotten approval from him. He worked under Carlin at the same time and talked about all of the same abuses that would occur 
and Mike's, you haven't earned it. You haven't, you know, cut your teeth. You're not, you're not there yet. You, you haven't learned the ropes. You have to put a certain amount of time in. And he says to me, so you think you're going to skip steps, huh? Go straight to us to the X office. And then his demeanor changes. And he goes, look, look, this is what Marvel does. They, they let guys like you cut their teeth and then, and then they steal you out from under us. And I'm kind of like, yeah, happy to be stolen. My interactions with Bob Harris had already been terrific. And let me say on record, Bob Harris and I would go on to then have a wonderful four-year career together. I found an editor that was cool, that um, was not abusive, that was not, you know, adhering to these old school motifs. And, and Mike wasn't really a, an old guy at this time, but boy, did he rage and push that ego around and that snark and that superiority. And I just, I was steeled. I, I, he was going to break me like he did before. I was steeled. I was prepared for this. I turned him down. He screamed. He said, I can't believe you're screwing us like this. I said, I'm very proud of that work. And I even said to him, I said, I don't understand what the problem is. The entire motto of DC Comics is that you're going to be following a consistent path now. And Eric Larson and Paul Kupperberg depicted the Doom Patrol in a certain fashion. It depicted the chaos dimension in the pages of Doom Patrol which came out just a few months prior to me receiving this story. And so I was adhering to what they did. He screams, I would never have approved that job. I would have never approved that book turning sideways. Under no circumstances would have, would that have gone out underneath me. And I wanted to say, well, you know, we, we don't know. You might have been on the, the set of, you know, Superboy, you know, uh, covering that show. I mean, because that's where your priorities were. But I did it because I wanted to be consistent and honor the rules of the game and the engagement that DC had told everybody they were after. They wanted consistency. Renee Witterstatter had approved it. Mike Carlin lost his shit twice. Once that I was not, that I had done this under, you know, this, I was waiting for him to get out of the office and two, you know, that I wasn't going to change it. So then I get a call from Carl, you know, saying, well, I, you probably heard, you know, this isn't approved and I'm going to redraw these. I said, Carl, do whatever you want to do, man. I could not have been more disappointed, but I get it. You know, Carl was given his marching orders by his boss, who was Mike Carlin, and he set about restructuring, recutting up my pages, and reformatting them to the standard format and no longer taking it from the sideways format. Did fandom care? No, fandom didn't care in, in so much as the book wasn't that big of a hit. But it was a hit in that it was now giving you know, Hawk and Dove, their own series. This this miniseries had done so well. In fact, letters appeared in the fourth issue. And I remember saying, like, all the letters pages in Hawk and Dove are gushing over the story, the art, they're on board. It was the first indication that what I was doing was being well-received. And when I asked Mike why he wouldn't tell me, he goes, I didn't want you to get, big, get a big head. I wasn't about to show you this mail. Great, man. So, yeah, that, that relationship sucked. That that was not good. But I steeled through it. I made it work. I delivered the work. I'm proud of the work. Um, You know, the work was changed. It was not published the way that I had intended for you to experience it. But it was one of the, uh, you know, important lessons in dealing with an abusive uh, uh, editor. And, and one that, you know, the best part is I would not repeat that ever again. I will, I will tell, I, I will revisit and, and wrap this era up of Hawk and Dove, my first gig where I cut my teeth 
realized that fans liked what I was doing, they would buy my comics, that I that I truly was worthy of the status of the L boy, the uh, uh, moniker that Todd had 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 thrown on us. Uh, again, those letters pages were crazy. I was thrilled to see that fans were digging the work of this young penciler, me. It meant again. I've always told people, every freelance job that succeeds means you're means you're going to get another one, which means you're going to pay for your overhead. You're going to keep the electricity on the the water running, and you're going to be able to buy food. And in my case, you know, contribute to my family and the struggle that we were going through. In 2012, the Image guys were all given our Inkpot Award. It is the equivalent of a Lifetime Achievement Award, Oscar Academy Award. Uh, it is a brilliant, I have it here on my mantle, it is a brilliant, brilliantly sculpted, heavy, this this um, jet black uh, uh, statue with this cartoon character with his quill on top of it uh, on, on this uh, black dais. It is heavy. It comes in this special box that you uncover in front of this giant audience of 7,000 people. I was awarded my Inkpot Award. I was also given a special station that everybody who was a special guest that year was given where you got a special table adjacent to Artist Alley in San Diego Comic-Con. Well, uh, two young stallions, two young studs that I had worked that I had hired at Extreme Studios, Todd Knock and Norm Ratman. They had put in five, six years. I had given them their first work at my Extreme Studios that I would create when I left to start Image Comics. It was my studio. It's the label that I put out all my comics under. These guys, um, I had great relationships with. Uh, Todd and Norm, I am still close to this day. Norm has inked me as recently as, it was 20 years ago, but he inked a really kick-ass uh, two-part Wolverine story with Deadpool that uh, has been reprinted a gazillion times uh, in the last decade. And, and uh, Norm has gone on to become one of the top inkers. Todd, Todd Nock went on to be one of the top pencilers. They both did about a 10-year run at DC Comics following Extreme Studios. Well, I see Mike Carlin and his wife as I am sitting there drawing at my table adjacent to them. And he saunters up to Norm and Todd, who he worked for, who he was an editor for, I don't know what their experience was, ne never discussed it. But he's flipping through their work, and in earshot of me, he says, oh yeah, you, you guys broke free of Rob Liefeld, right? And Norman Todd were, you know, quiet. Uh, Mike was still working at DC Comics at the time. I think he was in the animation department now. He wasn't doing monthly comics. But, uh, and Mike and I, trust me, he you're going to hear more of his story as we go through this uh, this. Uh, comic book history where the past informs the future because as a result of Image Comics, we spooked DC so badly they had to break, uh, they had to kill Superman uh, in order to compete and Mike was, you know, spearheaded that event which was very successful for them. Uh, an event that was a knee-jerk reaction to everything that was going on with Image Comics ended up doing very well for DC. So, so Mike will circle back in future installments of Rob's observations but at this point in 2012 at San Diego Comic-Con, Mike is making a crack about me to two guys who I gave their start in their careers who are clearly still intimidating. Mike is now, uh, he's older, he's, you know, big guy, and he's flipping through their portfolio and he goes, yeah, that Rob Liefeld, you know, really is a shame. You know, he, he, he never developed into anything special. And I'm sitting there going, oh, like, ear to ear, like, what a delirious comment. Mike is aware that X-Force sold 5 million copies. He is aware that New Mutants 
uh, ended up selling a million copies. He is aware that Image Comics was started and uh, created the knee-jerk reaction that necessitated Superman dying. And here he is to two young guys who I gave their break. He is shitting on me, saying it's too bad that nothing really important happened to me in my career and that I never developed into anything special. And I just shook my head and looked down because at this point, in, there's no there's no use in having any engagement. This is a guy who was um, sour to me from the word go, telling me that I only got the job because no one else wanted it, and then berated me the entire time I was on the job. But I never let him keep me from doing my best work. And if you have heard anything today, it is that you cannot let people oppress you and keep you. If anything, put that in your pocket and let it inspire you. Every time I broke a record, every time New Mutants went up a new sales barometer, I was thrilled. And I was thinking of Mike Carlin, who told me I couldn't possibly skip steps. I had not earned my place. I did not, you know, I did not cut my teeth appropriately. I had not put in the time. That is ridiculous. That is ridiculous. There are occasionally somebody like a Millie Bobby Brown is going to come on your screen. And the minute you see her, you're going to fall in love with her. And she is going to own the space for the next decade. It's not that she, she couldn't have put in more time. She was 11 or 12 when you first saw her. Sometimes talent, music, sometimes Nirvana just hits those strings and you react to it. And the next thing you know, Smells Like Teen Spirit is the biggest anthem in the world. Um, it doesn't come down to putting in time and cutting teeth. It comes down to talent. Do you have it? Do you not? I am a proud L-boy. I think I more than proved my seat at the table, whether my former editor, my oppressive editor, wanted to give me that do or not. It was kind of a nice chuckle. Like, look at him trying to turn my old, uh, you know, comrades at Extreme Studios and sour them on me. And uh, I've dined with them and signed with them in the years since. That was, they were quiet in the face of his insults. And the insults that he was given were more indicative of the bitterness that he carried with him that I was out from under him within five issues and never looked back. So that is my tale of Hawk and Dove. In the meantime, as I said, Eric Larson was knocking down Doom Patrol and Jim Lee was doing his very finest uh, to fill John Byrne's shoes on Alpha Flight. And soon we would all be under one banner at Marvel Comics where we would all start making some really amazing and beautiful music together. My journey at DC was exciting. I loved being part of Dove's creation. Um, I love that in the years since, I have gotten royalties on everything Dove and Dawn Granger related, because that is the name of the female Dove. I was able to meet Minka Kelly and Alan Richson at the premiere of the amazing Titan show. Two years ago, um, that show is fantastic. Seeing, again, characters of mine come to life with Don Granger. I am hopeful Kestrel will follow at some point, but um, Hawk, as conceived by Steve Ditko, Alan Richson embodies in the best possible way. They say that they made him bigger and thicker to reflect my version of Hawk. That may be. We all kind of have our influences on characters, but my pure uh, contribution to the mythos, along with Barbara and Carl, is Don Granger, the female dove, seeing that look that I fought so hard to 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 pull off and to get published, come to glorious life on uh, the big screen is uh, is a thrill. Minka and Alan could not be 
better embodiments of Hawk and Dev. I am hopeful that there will be further adventures, a season three, perhaps a spinoff. There is so much yet to be done. They are young. They are beautiful. They are talented. They are amazing. They pull off those characters in a way that I could never have possibly imagined. I mean, again, you, you got to, just like with Deadpool or Domino or Cable, you sit around and you hope that that casting works out. And when they cast Alan and Minka, I was through the roof. I could not believe they got someone as 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 amazing and, and physically gifted as well as just so talented with his acting ability with as Alan Richardson to embody Hawk. I was so excited to see him uh, get that role for everybody who's ever portrayed him, especially, you know, the Steve Ditko estate and, and, and the legacy that he left behind. And Minka just blew me away. And the way that, I mean, she's a brunette and that is always a wig you see her in. And it doesn't look like a wig. It looks like she has that jet white hair and she is so soft and vulnerable but badass have you seen i mean really r-rated violence on that show i mean they, they draw blood and those uh those no longer those doily wings those feathers are razor sharp she cuts people she bloodies them up the action is fantastic their chemistry is amazing i cannot heartily endorse uh the titan show it is kind of a it's gotten lost in my opinion maybe it's because of the platform that it's on i hope that they release seasons one and two on a larger platform maybe with hbo max in the very near future but my hawk and dove legacy is great i came back in 2011 no less to do another nine issues of it as part of the dc new 52 um another body of work i am tremendously proud to have partaken in it is so much fun these are characters that i will always identify with they gave me my start they gave me my springboard they, they showed me that I could connect with an audience, that I could tell a story that was entertaining, that would enlighten, that would uh, excite. And again, my, 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 my early uh, signings, comic book store signings, people were really thrilled. We did a signing at Golden Apple for the publication of Hawk and Dove 1. Carl and Barbara flew out and Golden Apple was the store in Los Angeles, in Southern California, to have your signing at back in the day. And they gave me the Rookie of the Year uh, New Talent of the Year Award. I still have it. A Golden Apple New Talent of the Year. I was so proud to rock that award. I, 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 I still have it. Again, I look at it. I remember those days, the fights to get those pages made. Um, again, Hawk and Dove 2 is one of my favorite jobs I've ever done. Barbara and Carl just, they understand how to write uh, these, these well-rounded stories with characterization packed with action and mystery and intrigue. And uh, again, just really fun. Um, I am now at Marvel by the end of this podcast. Eric Larson is on his way. He is joining me. We are going to start all doing the L boys are now an exclusive, uh, you know, exclusive branches of the giant Marvel tree. And you're going to watch us grow and extend and bear all sorts of crazy fruit. But that is my story. That is 1988 for me. That is, uh, you know, uh, Paying my dues, cutting my teeth, the, the, the full story of why you never got the sideways issue of Hawk and Dove. And, and I still, to this day, hear Mike Carlin saying, I would have never approved that Doom Patrol. So much yelling, so much yelling through the phone. My ear could barely take it. Um, dude definitely had a temper problem and, uh, took it out on young people, as I said, uh, with other talent whom I have enacted with, uh, Really didn't like breaking in rookies. You, you read about those coaches and they didn't like breaking in rookies. And I guess that was definitely his gig. Happy to have gotten the job. Happy to 
have the job be used as a springboard, happy to overturn to them under different management in 2011 and revisit Hawk and Dove. Uh, hopefully there'll be a hardcover omnibus, something that collects all, you know, 14 jobs that I did with them in some future date. But that is uh, up to a different L-boy altogether because Jim Lee is, as you know, an executive uh, big-time publisher at DC Comics now. Oh my gosh, the roads and all the ways that they have taken us. Uh, so, yeah, fun times. Good times. This is, this is, we are really in a fun time. Eric Larson jumps on the Punisher. Jim Lee jumps on the Punisher. I am in the X office and Todd McFarlane's Spider-Man run is about to take off. Ron Lim will pivot to Captain America and Silver Surfer. And uh, things are about to get really interesting. We are going to continue to cover it, walk through it. The past informs the future. Comic books kick so much ass. And they are uh, such a source of great pleasure for so many of us. Thank you for visiting with me today on this episode of Rob's Observations. Uh, I am on social media at Robert Liefeld on Twitter with the blue check at Robert Liefeld on Instagram at Rob Liefeld with the blue check, except no imitations. That's the real me. Uh, continue to talk to me on social media. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I'm always around. Uh, reach out. Let's talk. Let's discuss. Um, share this with your friends. Get your friends to listen. Uh, subscribe if you can. I'm told I don't say that enough. So there I am. I'm trying to say it enough. You guys have a great day. Enjoy yourself. Please stay safe out there and we will talk again soon. 